This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. The issue that I'm going to deal with this afternoon, after we have our prayer, is probably many of you guessed, we're going to deal with the issue of women's ordination. And I'm going to deal with it from a different perspective than uh, usually it is dealt with. Um, Some of you might know that I wrote a small book, 64 pages, when the women's ordination issue was um, in the forefront in two unions, the Columbia Union and the Pacific Union. And um, so I felt it was necessary to write uh, a small book anyway and uh, express what I feel to be the true issues involved. And uh, that book is available um, at the Secret Sunsealed booth. It's called Reflections on Women's Ordination. Uh, what I'm going to share today is not in the book. There's, there's one paragraph or a hint at what we're going to talk about. Uh, presently, I am finishing a second book about the same size as the first one, dealing with some additional issues uh, having to do with uh, this conflict that exists presently in the Adventist Church. Uh, with um, new information based on things that occurred since I wrote the first book. So, um, you know, uh, keep posted and uh, you, you will receive information if you gave us your email on um, the second book that will come out, as well as uh, we're going to also be producing two uh, one-hour presentations on DVD on this issue of which this uh, that I'm going to share this afternoon is one of the two. So let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get right into our study. Father in heaven, we know that you have called the Remnant Church to finish your work through the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan knows that as well. Satan knows that if he can unite his army and he can divide yours, his victory is assured. But we know that it's not going to be that way. We know that uh, you are going to, uh, your truth is going to bring about a shaking. And then there's going to be a remnant left that will uh, give a united front against Satan and his kingdom. And uh, we just ask, Father, that you will help us to understand the issues involved in what we're going to study today. That you will help us to understand the importance of what we're going to study And that uh, you will help us to take a stand for what is taught in your holy word and is taught in the spirit of prophecy. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of your presence. And we know that you will be here because we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'd like to begin this afternoon by formulating two questions. Question number one is this. Is it possible for two persons to be ontologically equal in all regards? Ontologically means as beings, okay? It means uh, equal value, uh, equal stature or status. I'm going to use that word uh, frequently, so I want to define what it means. Is it possible for two persons to be ontologically equal in all regards yet to have and have the same abilities and capacities 
and yet to fulfill different roles in ministry? That's our first question. Is it possible for two individuals to be ontologically equal, that is in value, in stature, in the sight of God, and have the same abilities and have the same capacities and yet have different roles in ministry? The second question is this. Is it possible for two people to be equal and yet have one be in subjection to the other? Do you understand the second question? Is it possible for two people to be equal, ontologically equal, and yet have one be subject or subordinate to the other? Now, I'd like to begin by reading a statement by two Christian women authors who say that it is impossible to believe that two beings can be equal and yet have one subordinate to the other. This is the quotation. It comes from Letha Scanzoni and Nancy Hardesty. Uh, the book is called All Were Meant to Be, A Biblical Approach to Women's Liberation. Uh, page 110. And uh, basically what they say, and I'd like to just uh, read this statement, uh, is this. Many Christians thus speak of a wife's being equal to her husband in personhood, but subordinate in function. However, this is just plain word games and is a contradiction in terms. Equality and subordination are contradictions. So are you understanding what they're saying? That it's impossible to have two people who are equal and have one be in subordination to the other. Now, much of the discussion on women's ordination centers on a study of certain biblical passages or texts. And unfortunately, the, those who are in favor and those who are against women's ordination use the same text, but they interpret the text in totally opposite ways. How can two groups of individuals take the same passages and interpret them so differently? Now, in recent years, some Seventh-day Adventist scholars have stated that in God's original plan for Adam and Eve before sin, there was no subordination. In other words, Adam and Eve were absolutely equal ontologically and they were also equal in their roles. But that after sin, for, uh, for reasons that have to do with the fall, God told the woman that she was to be the wife to be subordinate to the husband, but this arrangement only lasted until Jesus died on the cross. And then when Jesus died on the cross, the subordination of wives to their husbands disappeared, and once again, it was like at creation. Absolutely equal, not only in stature and status, but also in roles or in functions. There are Adventist scholars who are, who are saying this today. Now, in the presentation that I want to make this afternoon, we are going to go beyond the realm of interpreting texts. Not that it's not important to interpret Bible texts. That is an important endeavor. But we're going to take it uh, to a higher level and to a bigger picture 
than just analyzing individual Bible passages or Bible verses. And once again, I would like to formulate the two questions that we're going to attempt to answer in our study this afternoon. The question, the first question is, is it possible for two persons to be equal, to be involved in ministry, to possess the same abilities, and yet have different roles? And the second question is, is it possible for two persons to be equal as beings and yet to have one be in submission to the other? Are you understanding the two questions? These two questions, all of the discussion revolves around these two questions. If you can have these two questions answered correctly, I believe that the issue can be resolved. Now, this afternoon, we are going to study the most intimate relationship in the universe. We're going to study the relationship that exists between God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to show that this relationship between God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, is the pattern for human relationships. More specifically, for the relationship between husbands and wives. So if we can determine the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and how they relate to each other, we'll be able to understand God's plan for how husbands and wives should relate to each other. Now, it is agreed upon virtually by all theologians, unless they are Jehovah's Witnesses, that the Father and the Son are ontologically equal. Each of them is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and morally perfect. In other words, the Father and the Son are equal as beings. The Bible makes this very clear. Let's read a couple of Bible verses, and then we will read some clear statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. John 1 and verses 1 to 3 is the first text where I want to show that God the Father and the Son are equal. They are ontologically equal. One is not inferior to the other. Because much of the discussion on women's ordination is like this. If you believe that, that, women, that wives are supposed to be subordinate or they're supposed to be subject to their husbands, then you believe that wives are inferior to their husbands. That's a false issue. The question is, can they be equal and still have one in subordination to the other? And I believe that as we examine the Godhead, the answer is absolutely yes. Now let's notice John 1 verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Jesus. Is the Father God? Is the Son God? Are they ontologically equal? Absolutely, they are equal. Notice Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6 on this same point that the Father and the Son are ontologically equal. It says there, here the Apostle Paul of course is speaking about the condition of Christ before His incarnation and also at His incarnation. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, now that sounds kind of strange to us, you know, 
we say, well, he was just a form of God. He wasn't God. But we need to understand that, that the Greek word morphe, which is used here, which is translated form, means the stuff or the substance that composes someone. In other words, the emphasis is with the word morphe, or the word form of God, it means that Jesus is composed of the stuff of God. In other words, he is the, of the substance of God. He is substantially God, if you please. And so it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in other words, composed of the very substance, or the very stuff that makes God, God, it says, now notice this, did not count what? Equality with God as a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus did not hung, hang on to his equality with God. But was he equal with God? Yes. You wouldn't say that he didn't, he, he didn't hang on to his equality with God unless he was equal with God. And so this text makes it very clear that before Jesus came to this earth, he was in the form of God, he was composed of the very substance or the very stuff that composes God, but he did not consider this equality with God as something to be grasped or as something to be hung onto, not to be relinquished. Now I want to read some statements from the writings of Ellen White where she describes the equality of the Father and the Son. They are ontologically equal as beings. The first statement is found in the book God's Amazing Grace, page, 400, page 42. Uh, here, the Lord's servant, in harmony with the two texts that we just read, and there are others in the New Testament as well, she says, Since the divine law is as sacred as God himself, only one Equal with God could make atonement for its transgression. Only one what? Equal with God could make atonement for its transgression. In the devotional book, The Faith I Live By, page 46, Ellen White states categorically, Jesus was equal with God, infinite and omnipotent. Does Jesus have the same attributes of God? Yes, he does. He's of the same stuff and has the same nature, the same powers, the same character as the Father. Also on page 46, Ellen White says this, and this is powerful. She says, Christ was God essentially. See, that's the word morphe that we were talking about. She, uh, you know, she's saying that, that he was in, in his essence. The word essentially means in his essence. Christ was God essentially and in the highest sense. He was with God from all eternity. God over all, blessed forevermore. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity. A distinct person, yet one with the Father. He was the surpassing glory of heaven. He was the commander of the heavenly intelligences and the adoring homage of the angels was received by him as his right. So I ask once again the question, are the Father and the Son equal? Yes, they are absolutely equal. Now, 
Is there an intimate relationship between the Father and the Son? Yes. In fact, I'm going to give you some characteristics now where the relationship between the Father and the Son is described in terminology very similar to the terminology of marriage. Because the relationship between husbands and wives is illustrated by the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, usually we think of marriage in terms of sex. We're talking now here about marriage in terms of relationship. We're not dealing with the sexual issue in marriage. The Father and the Son have a relationship which is the pattern for the relationship that should exist between husbands and wives in marriage. Now, the first thing that I want us to notice about the relationship between the Father and the Son is that they have an intimate relationship. Let's go once again to John chapter 1 and verse 1. And let's notice there's a very important preposition that we have here in John 1 and verse 1. And uh, in the translation, you don't catch the nuance of the preposition. But in the Greek, you do catch that nuance. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now that word with, that preposition, it's the preposition pros. Basically, it means with, but it means being with someone and having movement towards someone. In other words, it's not simply, you're here and I'm here. No, but it's one person gravitating towards another. There's another preposition in Greek which simply says that I, I am with you. But this one is not that preposition. This preposition means that one was moving toward the others in fellowship. And the preposition is used twice. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it's repeated, He was in the beginning with God. Once again, the preposition, He was gravitating towards God. It's like they are, they are like a magnet attracting to one another. Now, in the book, The Faith I Live By, page 46, Ellen White amplifies this idea of the intimate fellowship movement towards one another that existed between the Father and the Son. She says in The Faith I Live By, page 46, in speaking of His preexistence, Christ carries the mind back through dateless ages. He assures us that there was never a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. How far does Jesus go back? There never was a time. Now what part of never was a time don't you understand? There never was a time when he was not in close fellowship. Close fellowship with the eternal God. In other words, there's, there was this fellowship, this intimacy, if you please, between the Father and the Son from eternity. Now, do you know that the Bible also describes the Father and the Son as one? Is that the term that is used in marriage? Absolutely. Let's notice John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 30. And of course, this threw uh, the Jews for a loop when they heard Jesus say this. They really got mad because they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God in every sense of the word. It says there in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus is speaking, I and my Father are one. 
Are they one or are they two? They are two that are one. Now let me ask you, is that true of marriage? Two are one? Absolutely. Now let me read you some statements from Ellen White. Sons and Daughters of God, page 286. Sons and Daughters of God, page 286. She says, in mind, in purpose, in character, they are one, but not in person. See how clear she is? In the devotional book, The Upward Look, page 153, she says, Christ is one with the Father, but God and Christ are two distinct personages. So it's just like marriage. The husband and the wife are no longer two, but they are one, and yet they are two. The father and the son are spoken of as being one, but they are really what? They are really two, but they're one in terms of unity, in terms of intimate fellowship. Now there's another interesting characteristic about the father and the son. Do you know Ellen White says that that Eve was Adam's other self? (laughs) In other words, he who saw Eve saw Adam. Let's read John 14, verses 8 and 9. John 14, verses 8 and 9. Here Jesus is speaking about his relationship with his father. And he says there to Philip, oh, actually Philip says to him first, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How, so how can you say, show us what? Show us the Father. So let me ask you, is Jesus the Father's other self? Yes, He is. Is the wife the husband's other self? That's what the Spirit of Prophecy tells us in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets. Now, let me read you a mind-boggling statement that shows how intimate is the relationship between the Father and the Son, and how the Son is simply the audible expression of the Father's mind. This statement is found in the book, That I May Know Him, page 38. That I May Know Him, page 38. And this is an amazing statement. Ellen White says, What speech is to thought, so is Christ to the invisible Father. He is the manifestation of the Father and is called the Word of God. In other words, what Ellen White is saying is that the Father thinks and Jesus says what the Father thinks. He is the audible expression of the thoughts of God. That's how intimate He is with the Father. In other words, He is as the Father's other self. The Father's audible self, if you please. Another interesting characteristic that shows uh, how the relationship between father and son is similar to the relationship in marriage is that we're told in Hebrews 1 and verse 3 that the son is the radiance of the father's glory. Do you know what the Apostle Paul says about about the, the wife? She is the glory of her husband. He says in 1 Corinthians. 
Are you seeing all the similarity between marriage and the relationship between the father and the son? Hebrews 1 verse 3. I'm reading from the NIV. You say, what? From the NIV? Is it possible? You know, let, let me tell you something about Bible versions. We have to be practical with Bible versions. I believe that the best manuscript trail is the Texas Receptus. Don't get me wrong. I believe that that's the best manuscript trail. But I don't believe that the King James translation is always the best translation of the manuscript trail. Are you understanding the distinction? The King James translation is not an inspired translation. What is inspired is the manuscripts from which the translation comes. And sometimes the King James mistranslates. And there are mistakes in the Textus Receptus as well. The Textus Receptus is not absolutely perfect. It depends on hundreds of manuscripts that were examined by Erasmus. So, so it's, there's nothing wrong with using modern versions as long as they don't contradict other portions of Scripture. They don't contradict the theology, the general theological picture of Scripture. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 2, Peter in his sermon says, he quotes Psalm 16, he says, You will not leave my soul in hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's the King James. That creates a whole big problem to us as Adventists. Because people say, see it says, his soul went to hell. You will not leave my soul in hell. Do you know how the NIV translates it? In good Adventist style, it says, You will not leave me in the grave. Now, which is the best translation? The best translation is the NIV. Now, I'm not endorsing wholesale the NIV. Because the NIV has its own problems. It leaves texts out. It changes words. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is that we have to be practical in our use of Bible versions. Because there are some modern versions that are valuable. But we need to make sure that they're in harmony with the manuscript trail. Now having said that, I'm reading from the NIV, Hebrews 1 verse 3. It says here, The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Like, like the wife is the glory of the husband. You can read that in 1 Corinthians. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Let me ask you, does the father love the son like the husband is to love the wife? John chapter 5 and verse 20. John chapter 5 and verse 20. It says, For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. See, do you see the intimacy again? Shows him all of the things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. And so the father loves the son. Do the father and the son know each other? Have you ever read in Scripture where the word know is used for the most intimate relationship, the, the sexual relationship? It says that Adam knew his wife. It's not talking about sex. It's talking about intimacy, 
knowing someone in and out. And I want you to notice how this terminology is used by Jesus to describe the relationship between him and his father. Forget it's not talking primarily about sex. It's not talking about sex here. It's talking about intimacy. Notice John chapter 10 and verse 15. Jesus says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Are you catching the picture? Once again, the idea of what? The idea of intimacy. No is used to describe an intimate relationship between beings. Now let me ask you. Does everything that belonged to the Father belong also to Jesus? Yes. Does everything that belongs to the husband belong also to the wife? Absolutely. Notice John chapter 16 and verse 15. John chapter 16 and verse 15. It says here, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So do they have all things in common, like in a marriage, in society? No prenuptial agreements here. (laughs) Because they have everything in common. Now, a husband and a wife, usually when they get married, do they want to have children? Yeah. So did the father and the son get together and said, let's have children? Yes, not by procreation, but by what? Creation. And so the Father, through the Son, creates children. Is that true of marriage as well? Are you seeing here that the relationship between the Father and the Son is very similar to the relationship between husband and wife? And so what would be the best illustration of the relationship that should exist between husbands and wives? The best illustration is the relationship between the father and the son. Are they absolutely equal? They are absolutely equal. But now let me ask you the question. Is the son subject to his father? Yes or no? Yes. Oh, but only, only after sin. Let's pursue that. Revelation 4, verse 11. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. We already read this uh, a couple of days ago in our first session together. Here is it speaking, uh, this is a song that's being sung in honor of the Creator, God the Father. And the heavenly beings, the 24 elders and the four living creatures are singing, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and now notice, you created all things, and then what does it say? And by your will they were existed and were created. Whose will was creation? It was God the Father's will. But how did the Father... The task of creation. He did it through Jesus Christ. Jesus took orders from his Father. Let's read several verses from Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. Listen carefully to this. Yet for us there is one God, the Father. 
of whom are all things. Is that, is that picture clear? It says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, now listen carefully, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So the Father accomplishes His will, how? Through His Son. His Son does the bidding of the Father in creation, even though He is equal to His Father. Let's notice Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Same idea coming through, that the Son executes the will of the Father. He takes orders from His Father, even before sin came into the universe. Colossians 1 verse 16. It says there, For by Him, this is speaking about Jesus, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Listen carefully now. All things were created how? Through Him and for Him. So how did God the Father create? He created through Jesus. Now let's notice one final text here that deals with how the Son executes the will of His Father. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. This is so explicit that nobody need misunderstand. It says here, God, this is the Father, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So God is the Father, right? And He's speaking in these last days through whom? By His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Who made the worlds? God the Father. How did He do it? Through Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you this. Was Jesus Michael before sin came into the universe? Of course he was. He was Michael the archangel before sin came into the universe. You say, w where does it say that? Incidentally, let me ask you, why was Lucifer, uh, what led to Lucifer's rebellion? What was he jealous of? He was unhappy with the position that God had given him. He did not want to be subordinate he became insubordinate to the position that God gave him. He wanted a higher position and power. That thoughts begin to ring a bell? Interesting. And so he became jealous of Christ. And at this time, Jesus was already the commander of the angel hosts. Because we're told in Revelation 12, if you go with me, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels. See, Jesus was already the commander of the angels. And yet he was God. It says, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, 
who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Was Jesus already Michael, the commander of the angel hosts, before sin came into this world? Actually, before sin came into the universe. Absolutely. Now, let me read you some enlightening statements from Ellen White about how Jesus was subordinate to his father even in eternity and yet equal with his father. The book Lift Him Up, page 18. Ellen White makes this remark. The father, he gets all of the angels together to explain the position of Jesus, says the father then made known that it was ordained by himself that Christ, his son, should be equal with himself. So that wherever was the presence of his son, it was as his own presence. The word of the Son was to be obeyed as readily as the word of the Father. His Son, listen carefully, He had invested with authority to command the heavenly host. Especially was His Son to work in union with Himself in the anticipated creation of the earth and every living thing that should exist upon the earth. His Son would carry out His will and His purposes. Whose will and purposes? The Father's. His Son would carry out His will and His purposes, but would do nothing of Himself alone. The Father's will would be fulfilled in Him. Was the Son subject to the Father in eternity? Did He do what the Father asked Him to do? Yes, He did. Now allow me to read another interesting statement. This one we find uh, in Patriarchs and Prophets. We find the page here, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 36. This is a powerful statement. This is when Lucifer started spreading his rumors all across heaven, and the angels were taking sides. Uh, Eventually the Father had had to convoke a special meeting. It says, The King of the Universe summoned the heavenly hosts before him, that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his Son and show the relation he sustained to all created beings. The Son of God shared the Father's throne, and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled both. Were they equal? Absolutely. About the throne, now listen to this, About the throne gathered the holy angels, a vast unnumbered throng, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The most exalted angels as ministers and subjects rejoicing in the light that fell upon them from the presence of the deity. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king, who's that referring to? The father, the king declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes. And to him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will. Whose will was Jesus going to execute in eternity? His Father's will. She continues saying, The Son of God, the Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of all of the hosts of heaven. 
and to him, as well as to God, their homage and allegiance were due. See, there you have the idea of the son doing what the father says, and yet saying that he deserved the homage that was given to the father. She continues saying, Christ was still to exercise divine power in the creation of the earth and its inhabitants. Now listen. But in all this, he would not seek power or exaltation for himself, contrary to God's plan, but would exalt the Father's glory and execute his purposes of beneficence and love. Who did Jesus live to glorify in eternity? The Father. Whose will did he implement? The Father. So, so Jesus could have said, what makes you think that I should take your orders? We're equal, aren't we? So we should have the same roles. Do you know what our problem is? Our problem is that we have our heads screwed on wrong. We think that subjection is a bad thing. When subjection is a divine principle. Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The first shall be last, and the last first. You see, this, this whole idea of fighting for position, for position that God has not called to, is a manifestation similar to what happened at the very, very beginning of human history. One more statement, Signs of the Times, October 24, 1906. Ellen White says, it is a mystery that one equal with the Eternal Father. One what? Equal with the Eternal Father should so abase himself as to suffer the cruel death of the cross to ransom, ransom man. And now listen to this. And it is a mystery that God so loved, listen, as to permit his son to make this great sacrifice. As to what? So who is Jesus taking orders from? From his father. So that makes him inferior. The son has the identical role as the father. No. They're equal, but they have different roles. The son is equal, but he's subject to his father. To his father's will. Is he fine with that? So why aren't people in the church fine with that now? Now, some people say, well, okay. Was Jesus subject to his father? Was Jesus equal to his father while he was on earth? Of course he was. Was he still God? And yet, was he subject to his father while he was on earth? Absolutely. Let me ask you, were the father and the son both involved in ministry? While Jesus was on earth? Yeah. Did they have identical ministries? Or did they have different roles? They had different roles. But they were what? They were equal. But they had different roles. I'm going to read you some statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2, page 164. Speaking about Jesus while he was on earth. She, uh, she says, Jesus claimed equal rights with God. There's a lot of talk about equal rights today, isn't there? Equal rights. 
for husbands and wives and for, for women who want to be ordained pastors in church. Equal rights. It says Jesus claimed equal rights with God in doing a work equally sacred and of the same character with that which engaged his Father in heaven. And yet we remember that Jesus said, My Father is greater than I. Jesus was always willing to take second place. Even though Jesus was equal with his Father. Whose will did Jesus do while he was on earth? Notice John chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Did Jesus continue living on earth as he had lived in heaven? Absolutely. John 6 verse 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He did his Father's will. And now he does his Father's will while he is on the earth. Desire of Ages 22 and 23. This is a magnificent statement of Ellen White. She says, He might have retained the glory of heaven. He could have said, I demand my rights. I demand my position. After all, I am equal. Why don't you go and die? He could have said that to the Father. He might have retained the glory of heaven and the homage of the angels. But he chose to give back the scepter into the Father's hands and to step down from the throne of the universe that he might bring light to the benighted and life to the perishing. Did Jesus live to bring glory to his Father? Did he grasp and hang on to equality with God as something to be grasped and demand his rights and demand his equality and say, I have the same ministry and I have the same role as the Father. Absolutely not. He humbled himself. Notice Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So is the plan of Jesus the same plan for us? That's what Paul is arguing here. He's saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself of what? Made himself of no reputation. Is it a choice? Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, And being found in the appearance as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus did not fight for a higher position. He did not fight to retain his higher position. Jesus Christ was willing to descend because he knew that the first would be last and the last first. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In the book, um, what is TKH, um, that I may know him, page 60, Ellen White says, Christ was one with the Father. See, there's the equality. Yet when sin entered our world through Adam's transgression, 
he was willing to step down from the exaltation of one who was equal with God, who dwelt in light unapproachable by humanity, so full of glory that no man could behold his face and live and submit to insult, mockery, suffering, pain, and death in order to answer the claims of the immutable law of God and make a way of escape for the transgressor by his death and righteousness. Now listen carefully. This was the work which his father gave him to do. Why did Jesus do what he did? His father told him to do it. And those who accept Christ, relying wholly upon his merits, are made the adopted sons and daughters of God, are heirs of God and joint heirs <coughs> with Jesus Christ. Here's another one. January 8, 1880. Signs of the Times. She says, Christ taught that all true goodness and greatness of character, all peace and joy in the soul, must come through perfect and entire submission to his Father's will, which is the highest law of duty. What does she say is, is uh, true goodness and greatness of character? Entire submission. Oh, I thought submission was bad. Entire submission to his Father's will which is the highest law of duty. The lessons connected with their great commission, which they were to put to a practical use, were given to the disciples upon this occasion. They were to carry the light of truth to the world. Here's another statement. In all things, he brought his wishes into strict abeyance to his mission. He glorified his life by everything, listen carefully, in it subordinate to the will of of his father. Do you know that even while Jesus was in the tomb. Jesus would have never come forth from the tomb. Unless his father had given him permission to do so. Now when he came out of the tomb. He came out with a life that was within himself. But his father gave him permission to take back his life. Let me read you this remarkable statement. The faith I live by page 50. Ellen White says, He who died for the sins of the world was to remain in the tomb the allotted time. He was in that stony prison, prison house as a prisoner of divine justice. He was responsible to the judge of the universe. He was bearing the sins of the world and his father only could release him. Wow. Now you're saying, okay. So he was subject to his father. He was equal with his father, but subject to his father during his ministry on earth. But after he went back to heaven, he claimed his rights again. You think? Let me ask you, when Jesus went back to heaven, was he equal with his father? Did he have the same capacities and abilities as his father? Was he still involved in ministry like his father was involved in ministry? Of course. So the issue is not equality, ability, or ministry, but rather roles or functions. Now, let me share with you some information here that indicates that after Jesus went to heaven, he was still subject to his Father. So subjection isn't bad. John 17, verse 4. We'll go through this quickly. John 17, verse 4. This is the prayer of Jesus to his Father, and he says, And now, O Father... Glorify me. What is he saying? Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
Who is it that glorifies Christ upon his ascension to heaven? His Father. If you read Psalm 110 verse 1, the Father says, Sit thou at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's commanding Jesus to sit at his right hand. As we've noticed, even the promise of the Holy Spirit was given by the Father to Jesus so that Jesus could give it to us. Acts 2 verse 33 says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, received from whom? From the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Notice 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. This is a magnificent text. It says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Does Jesus have a problem with the head, but with his head being God? Does he have a problem with that? He doesn't have a problem with that. Does, uh, does, should man have any reservations about Christ being the head of the man? But we do have reservations when it says that the head of the woman is man. But if you believe the, the, the two, you're going to have to believe the third one also, right? Now notice Matthew 28 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. This is the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. And there's a very important little detail here. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So when Jesus resurrected, where did he get his authority from? From his Father. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. After Jesus humbles himself, takes the form of a servant, even though he's equal with God, he does not consider, consider equality with God as something to be hung on to. He, he abases himself. He takes the form of a servant. He dies the death of a cross. And now Jesus resurrects and he ascends and who is it that glorifies him and gives him a name that is above every name? Does Jesus go back to heaven and say, Okay, I'm here. Give me my rights back. No. Notice Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has also highly exalted him. And given him the, the Father. And given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth. And of those under the earth. And listen carefully. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So let me ask you. The Father and the Son equal before sin. The son subject to the father's will before sin? So that makes him inferior to the father. Different ministries? Different roles? Yeah, different roles. But the son subject to the will of the father. So is it possible to be equal and yet have one be subject to the other? We don't want that to happen in human relationships. We want just it to happen in the, in the Godhead. See? But the Godhead is the example. Are you following me? 
Now you say, okay, Pastor Boy, when Jesus went back to heaven, he's equal to his father, and, you know, uh, he, he, um, he's given a name that is above every name. But are you sure that Jesus is going to be subject to his father throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity? That he's going to subject himself to his father forever? Isn't that negative that Jesus is going to be subject and the father is going to be the head? Go with me to our last text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verses 24 through 28. I want you to notice that even in eternity future, the Son will be subject to His Father, and yet equal with His Father. It says here, Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to deliver the kingdom to whom? To God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. The Father has put everything under the feet of Jesus. But now notice. But when he says all things are put under him. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Is that registering what it's saying? When it says that everything is under the feet of Jesus, is there an exception? Yes. Who is the exception? God the Father. Notice what it continues saying in verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God... May be all in all. Would Jesus be subject to his Father throughout eternity? So is subjection a bad thing? Listen carefully. The apostle makes it clear. He says, husbands, love your wives. He says to the wives, wives, be subject to your husbands. That's the creation order. Now that doesn't mean that, that uh, wives have to be subject to the whims of, of the husband and the husband is supposed to beat up on his wife and she's supposed to uh, do everything even if it's contrary to God's will no man has abused his position and that's caused a reaction but the fact that there's a reaction to something that is done improperly doesn't mean that it's not still God's plan that the husband loved the wife and that the wife, you know, if the husband gives himself fully and completely to the wife, the wife's not going to have a very big problem with being subject. Right? So that's God's plan. Now let me ask you, is it still God's plan in the church also? That the man be the head in the church as he is the head in the home. Ellen White makes that connection very clear. When she gives the lists of, of uh, qualifications for the elder and for the bishop, she says he needs to be the husband of one wife. She's using the home as an example of what should exist in the church. And he even goes so far as to say, if, if this man is not able to govern his children, how is he going to govern the church of God? You see, he's saying that the relationship that exists between husbands and wives in, in the home should translate into spiritual leadership of the man in the church. 
And yet today, there are those who want everything to be absolutely egalitarian. People say the only difference between men and women is a biological difference, but they have the same roles. And that's why our society is so messed up. Because women think that they have to compete with men. They have to equal men. And in the process, they have lost their femininity. That special quality that God gave to women that no man could ever have. Because there's this idea that has been proliferated by the media that there are no role distinctions. But God has made it very clear that there are role distinctions. The man was created to be father and the woman was created to be the mother. And today it's uh, very common for people to say, uh, you know, like Hillary Clinton said, oh, so you want me to go home and make cookies? That's the extent to which, which women uh, conceive of motherhood today. Ellen White says that mothers have a more sacred function than husbands. And men. Because you're bringing up your children in the fear of the Lord to live eternally with the Lord. In the second book that I'm writing now, I have some amazing quotations from Ellen White about the role of women. And you read those quotations, the media would say, boy, did she ever live in the Stone Age. But she's right. Because what she's saying is biblical. We are still a people of the Bible. We are not a people of culture. We are not a people that do what the media says we're supposed to do. We do what God's word says that we're supposed to do. And so this whole issue, folks, is not an issue of whether men and women are equal. Because they are. As beings, ontologically. It's not an issue of whether men and women have capabilities and capacities. Because both of them do. It's not an issue of whether uh, men and women have a ministry. Because both men and women have a ministry. The issue is not equality. The issue is not ministry. The issue is not capacity. The issue is what role has God established for husbands and wives and for leaders of the church? What does God say? That's the key. And these days, you know what's happening in the church? And I'm just about to finish what's happening in the church is there's all kinds of cultural arguments that are offered to have the ordination of women and women pastors in the church. But there are no biblical arguments. No spirit of prophecy arguments. We are people of the book. And we need to go by the book. Not by what culture dictates or what society wants or what the media wants to happen and I'll tell you folks that what's going to happen is mark my word it's happening in other churches that in the course of time once you open the door a crack to this issue of women being ordained as pastors the next step is to ordain gay pastors it's coming and then the next step You look at the liberal churches today. All these liberal uh, mainline churches. The next step will be to deny that the world was created in six literal days. 
And eventually you will end up disbelieving the testimony of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy practically on everything. Don't let it happen. Stand by the book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us glimpses in your holy word of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We know that that is the perfect pattern for relationships in marriage and in the church. You want us to be willing to set ourselves aside and just serve. Not strive for position and power and name, but simply to fill the role that you have created for us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here at GYC. I ask that as we return to our homes and to our churches, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will help us to speak up in love about these things. Help us, Lord, to be united such as never before. Help us to give the devil a united front as your army. We thank you, Father, for having been with us this afternoon and in this seminar. We ask that you will continue to bless all of the activities that take place culminating tomorrow. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org. Dot org.